All right, I think we can begin. All right, so this is Thursday. We're continuing with our discussion of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, we're in chapter four. And uh, before we before we go further, I want to back up a little bit. Um, yesterday we had a couple of questions and uh, I was thinking about this last night and actually talking to my wife and she reminded me about um, some of the considerations about the uh, process of dealing with uh, some of these uh, emotions that are much more heavily kind of embedded in ourselves. Remember I read from the Charaka Samhita, this is the the text that has to do with Ayurveda, with healing, balance, well-being. And the, the quote was, wise people should refrain from satisfying the urges related to greed, grief, fear, anger, vanity, shamelessness, envy, excessive attachment, and coveting of another's property. So, so should refrain from these urges. And the reason is because according to Ayurveda, these urges, these uh, emotion, <coughs> emotions, these things that take us over, if they're not dealt with, if they're not handled, find a home in the body. They find a home in the organs and the tissues. And over time, if they are persistent, we continue to go back and, and repeat these emotions and have these experiences, then they turn out, then they become uh, toxins for the body and these organs begin to suffer and we end up with chronic diseases as a result of unprocessed emotion. So this is, you know, this is something that's very real and it's been recognized for several thousand years now. Um, and so in my answer, and of course here we had in the, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna said, released from greed, fear, anger, Absorbed in me and made pure by the practice of wisdom, many have attained my own state of being. So released from these emotions, you know, we're able to transcend. We're able to move beyond the, this limited identification. And so, and, and my answer yesterday was pretty much the party line. And it's true that if we observe, we notice what's happening. We notice the emotions coming up, we notice the response, we notice our actions. If we pay attention to these things and we really become mindful of what's going on, then in time they can lose their attention, lose their juice, lose their power over us. So we can, we can do this by observation. However, there are some times when the condition, the emotional condition is carried along with a very serious trauma. And when trauma is involved, this is like post-traumatic stress disorder, or if we're very much uh, engaged, involved in something and it changes, you know, if our identity is related to the job that we're doing, for example, and if, if our, we're completely established in that, and this is how we, we experience ourselves and feel ourselves, and then this job is ripped out from underneath us, and then there's this grieving process, you know, because I've lost myself. I've lost my sense of self. And sometimes there can be, can be physiological trauma and there can be emotional trauma and there can be mental trauma that is a little heavier than just these emotional attachments and conditions and urges. And 
So I was reminded when we were talking last night, um, about a year and a half ago, we went through a series of presentations by some of the top people, uh, at least in America, top people um, that are uh, working with serious trauma and understanding it in a kind of in a new light, in a new way, and understanding that um, sometimes we have to go beyond just the intellect, observing what's happening there, looking at things. We have to go beyond that and really start to address what's happening in the body where these emotions, where these traumas are really stored. And so if you remember yesterday, I was talking about the introceptive network. So this is the part of the body that's paying attention to what's going on inside the body. And we can eavesdrop on the introceptive network. That is, we can notice when we're hungry, we feel you know, rumbling in the tummy, you know, and our when we've overdone our exercise, we can feel the muscles, the strain in the muscles. And if we're really paying attention, if we're really paying attention, if we're really mindful, we can notice triggers that bring up these traumas. And we start to actually have, when we start to think about this condition or this traumatic thing is re-triggered for some reason, someplace in our body responds and we feel a discomfort. We feel something unpleasant going on and this is a sign that the body is responding in a negative way that there that the body has created a survival mechanism that says whenever these conditions exist we have to shut down or whenever these conditions exist we have to become hyperactivated so post-traumatic stress disorder you know especially for people who have been in the military uh, you're out on the battlefield, uh, one of these charges goes off, you know, 10 feet away and maybe kills your friend and, you know, terrible, traumatic. I mean, this is really a low survival uh, situation. And so the body remembers this. So this is more than just the intellect. So, so yes, with wisdom and observation, we can deal with many things, most things, but some of these heavier traumas require processing and looking at what's going on somatically in the body the feeling the sensation and, and i mean i have a, a, a personal example about 20 years ago i went through a, a, a health challenge uh, i wasn't paying attention to my to the signs and symptoms that were coming up and i allowed myself to get way way out of balance and as a result ended up uh, you know pretty sick and so in the process of uh, recovery, I actually had to go in the hospital for two days um, and, and have a bunch of electrolytes to get my system back up and antibiotics and all this. It's only two days, but it really took a lot out of me. So I was very weak. And, and then uh, they had prescribed uh, like two weeks later that I would have a colonoscopy. And of course, this was my first opportunity for this experience. And of course, it's recommended, you know, for for uh, for people who are have been on the planet for a while. Um, and so this was part of my, you know, part of what they recommended. And and so this is in the middle of winter. So I am very weak, very weak. I've lost a tremendous amount of weight. I'm just like skin and bones at the time. Um, and I go into the hospital and it's cold. It's ice cold in this hospital in the middle of winter up here in the mountains. 
and they they put me in this room and make me put on this gown. They take so they take off all your clothes and put on this little thin, you know, barely anything gown. And so and I go, you know, please, can I have a blanket or put my sweater on? You're not gonna do anything up here, so <laughs> let me stay warm. No, no, you have to wear this gown. And then so I'm, you know, goosebumps, shivering a little bit. And then they come in and they want to take blood before they do a colonoscopy for some reason. And in the process of taking blood, and, and I have really kind of significantly large veins. In the process of taking blood, uh, the nurse was either having a bad day or was just incompetent, but she sticks the needle in and misses the vein two times, three times, four times. She's poking around in my arm and I'm like, my body's really not on board with that. And finally she gives up on that side and switches over to the other side and starts poking in the other arm. And when that happened, I went out like a light. Next thing I knew, I was laying on the floor, coming back to, there were like eight nurses around me and they're all looking really worried, really concerned. <laughs> it's like, oh no, we killed him. <laughs> you know, he can't charge his insurance for the colonoscopy. So, <laughs> So, so that, anyway, this was traumatic. I mean, traumatic enough to where my body completely shut down and I passed out cold. And I have had, I, I've had IVs a hundred times, not for challenging things, but for, you know, for fun. Um, so this is not something that's a long-term problem. This was the first time that this was really such a, uh, uh, a problem. And so that happened. Okay, so this is a big trauma. So last Wednesday, I go in to have blood drawn for you know a routine blood test, and it happens to be that they've got the doctor's office freezing cold, which is supposed to be good to keep the virus down or something. I, they have a reason. Um, and I have a t-shirt on, I don't have to do the robe thing, but, but I'm sitting in this cold office, and the nurse who comes in to take my blood is also very incompetent. So she pokes, pokes the needle in and misses the vein and goes, oh, look at that, the vein, like it's running away. And so she doesn't take the needle all the way out, she just pulls it out a little bit and pokes again and pokes again and it's like, and now it's hurting. I mean, it really is, this is painful. So that, that really hurts. So she takes it out and then goes over to start on the other side. And the next thing I knew, I was <coughs> passed out cold. And they're, and they're shaking me and going, come, come back, come back, you know? Um, and my wife was standing there and she was like, what have they done? <laughs> and to me, it was just, you know, it was an instant. I was actually dreaming. Um, I said, how long was I out? And she said, oh, about two minutes. You were snoring. <laughs> so... So the reason I share this with you is this is a trauma that's in the body. I'm observing this and I'm observing the body's reaction. I noticed that it's starting to shut down. I know what's going to happen. See, I've been there before and, and knowing what's going to happen and observing it does not stop it from happening. Okay. So, so there is, so here is a, a trauma. And fortunately this is not a big issue. Um, and uh, 
you know, and it can be handled and resolved. But some of the things that are traumas that have go way back to when we were children, you know, uh, as a result of abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse, and a lot of these things. And, and because when we're very young, you know, we really don't know what's happening. We don't know how to process this. And so the body contains these, it, it, it stuffs these emotions, it, it uh, sequesters them. And these become very traumatic, somatic uh, instances that, uh, that can be de dealt with, but not easily and not just mentally, not just by observing. Much as we like to think so, it requires some more energy, some more effort. So on one hand, you know, we want to not own it. So we don't want to continue to affirm this is a problem for me. I have this, you know, this situation. I have this anger that I can't deal with. I have this fear, you know, all these things and grief. You know, So we don't want to own that and say, that's me. This is part of my character. We can observe it. We can have a little dispassion, get a little distance from it. But sometimes we also need to get some, uh, some professional help, some professional assistance to be able to deal with these things. And if we notice that, you know, here's these traumas, this post-traumatic stress, you know, and, um, these things that have gone on and that continue to, re, you know, pop up and have some control over me, then we can go and look for a professional. And you can go find someone who has, a, you know, an expertise in dealing with this. And the individuals that were in this uh, this uh, course, several week course of presentations, um, were dealing very much with this somatic issue. So there are a couple people. Uh, one's um, Peter Levine. Peter Levine uh, he he specializes in somatic experiencing, and and you can, he's on YouTube. He makes has presentations and best selling books, and but a system and individuals who understand his system and his approach. Uh, another one is Bessel van der Kolk, and he had a best-selling book uh, called The Body Keeps the Score. And so both of these individuals and, and others that are, that are sort of on the same page um, have done lots of research and have found that to, in order to really be effective in dealing with some of these really traumatic, deeply stored uh, emotional situations uh, that there are some processes that are that are available and many of them have to do with this somatic approach you know you start to explain what's happening and it's not a typical psychotherapy where you just talk out and explain you know go through and relive it because what they say is every time you relive it you're actually putting more energy into it and making it stay so instead of that you start to talk about it, and then as soon as you and, and you do this mindfully, and you pay attention, and as soon as you start to to get into this, you'll start to feel something in your body is responding, and then they say, "Well, just sit with that, just you know, allow that to happen, allow that to feel it, express it, allow it to come out, allow it to to move through." And so, by being mindful and paying attention and not repressing it and not pushing it away because it's uncomfortable, but rather embracing it and allowing it to express, then it can the, the energy goes out of it, the prana goes out of it, the, the force that keeps it real goes out of it. We don't forget what happened, but we no longer have that you know that strong 
controlling impulse that goes along with it. So, so hopefully that's a little more uh, insight into uh, some of these emotions that can be, you know, a little difficult to deal with, but they can all be dealt with. And of course, none of them are us. We are consciousness. We are always superior to this, but just like uh, being superior to this, uh, if I notice that I have just, uh, you know, twisted my ankle, broken my foot, I can notice that. And as much as I want to think it my way out of it, and as much as I want to be positive with my mental attitude and know that everything is well and harmonious, the best solution is probably go to the doctor and get it set, you know, probably get it taken care of by a professional, something that is beyond my ability to handle just mentally. So, uh, so in the same way, we can have uh, traumatic conditions, traumatic situations, that may require a little uh, additional intervention from a professional. So we go on today, continuing in chapter four, and uh, Krishna continues to speak, higher consciousness continues to speak, and he says, surrendering all thoughts of outcome, so we're letting go of our expectations, unperturbed, self-reliant, he does nothing at all, even when fully engaged in actions. So. So here we are experiencing soul contentment. We are completely content. We're not looking for the results of our actions. We're not looking, expecting anything. So being already content, being soul content, and then being fully responsible for what we do. So we're no longer compelled. We are doing what we do because this is what, it, what we are impelled to do. This is what we are inspired to do. And we're fully responsible. So there's no compulsion. There's no uh, attachment, no aversion. We're moving harmoniously with life in a way that we're being called to move. So he goes on to say, there's nothing that he expects. There's nothing that he fears. Serene, free from possessions, untainted, acting with the body alone. So no compulsions, no cravings. The soul is experiencing directly through the body. In other words, we are, we are, soul conscious we are aware at, at the innermost uh, level that we are this witness this viewpoint the observer that is having this adventure operating through the body but we are not the body operating through the emotions and the mind but we are not the emotions and we are not the mind these are the tools that we use in order to relate in order to interact it's just like you get into your automobile and you merge with the automobile. You know, you, ha you have a sense of where the fenders are, how close you are to the curb. You know, you pull up with the car in the parking lot and you know how close you, you know, how close are you to the car in front of you. You can't see the bumper down there, but there's a, but your senses extend to this vehicle. And it has all these uh, controls, you know, the, the gas pedal and the brake and the steering wheel and all these, these, uh, operational things and so we get in the car and we become the car becomes an extension of ourself and we drive the car but we're not the car and then we get out of the car and we let that go so this vehicle that we're in here is like that we're operating through it and if we are if we remain conscious and aware of this all the time if we are awake then we operate through the body without being attached to it and without being 
uh, controlled by it. Does that make sense? Content with whatever happens, unattached to pleasure or pain, success or failure, he acts and is never bound by his action. He acts and is never bound by his action. So, so because we're not, uh, we're not upset, we're content with whatever's happening, we're no longer accumulating or creating karma. We're no longer um, caught in the cycle of, uh, you know, cause and effect. I'm doing this, it produces that effect, and then later on I have to pay the price. And so everything we do is producing some effect in the future. Now we disconnect from that and we do what we do because it's ours to do and we're not attached to the outcome. We're always content, always grounded. We don't have unreasonable expectations. We're not looking for results. We just act. We're operating fully consciously involved in life. Like I said yesterday, you know, it's like we dance to dance. We live to live. It's very simple. I mean, it's so simple that most people just keep overlooking that and they try to make it more complicated than it is. And then they create a lot of problems for themselves. When a man has let go of attachments, when his mind is rooted in wisdom, everything he does is worship and his actions all melt away. This is liberation. You know, we talk about liberation of consciousness. What does that look like? Well, we've let go of all attachments. We're not attached or we have let go of all of our aversions. Our mind is rooted in wisdom. So we are conscious, aware, bright. And everything that we do is done in, as a, in relationship to this larger reality, to God. And so everything we do is worship. Everything that we do is a service, is a contribution to life. And so in, that, in those terms, we are working to do our part, you know. And in the process of this worship, in the process of doing our part, of serving, in the process of this, we experience fulfillment and contentment and peace and, uh, and joy and all these uh, conditions that we aspire to and that are directly related to liberation. Liberation of consciousness means that it's no longer constrained. It's no longer limited. It's free. And when we're free, we are operating in harmony with life. And then he goes on to say, God is the offering. God is the offered, poured out by God. God is attained by all those who see God in every action. God is the offering, God is the offered, poured out by God. God is attained by all those who see God in every action. So this, this sense of independent existence, this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this viewpoint, this, uh, this witness, this observer that we are, makes possible our interaction with the rest of life. So we are operating through this witness consciousness, this awareness, and this is God. This is the, this individualized awareness, individualized God, interacting with itself as uh, this external expressive reality, which is God. And the actions that we are taking, that we are involved in, is also part of this expressive reality. That's also God. So we're seeing 
that God is operating through us as us. And the operation is this expression of prana, of life force, of this expressive aspect. And it's interacting and relating with itself in all these forms. And so God is all it is. And then he goes on and says, some men of yoga pray to the gods and make this their worship. Some men pray to the gods and make this their worship. And so we're talking here about individuals who see the gods, see the ultimate reality as separate. And so they're praying, they're asking for something to change, something to improve, uh, you know, for a boon of some kind. They want something different, something to change. So this, this is a way of interacting with God. This is a way of worshiping but it is a limited way. This is the, the lower way because it implies that we're separate, that we're outside. And so there's some force out here that can fulfill our needs, fulfill our desires, make us happy and healthy and prosperous, etc. And then he goes on and says that some offer worship by worship itself in the fire of God. Some offer worship by worship itself in the fire of God. And so here we have those who are surrendering their self-centeredness, self-consciousness. They surrender this into this larger reality, into this higher reality, and merge. This is a transcendent experience. So some worship by praying, and some worship by letting go and allowing this transcendent experience to, to emerge, to blossom naturally. Others offer their senses in the fire of self-abnegation, and others offer the senses objects in the fire of the senses. So some are uh, some offer their senses in the fire of self-abnegation, and so these are um, those who discipline the senses and the impulses. So we are we are becoming self-disciplined. We are restraining uh, some impulses that may be taking us in the wrong direction. So this is, a, this is another worship. We are making a conscious decision to become disciplined and intentional. And then others offer senses objects in the fire of the senses. And so these are ones who are regulating their desires, their uh, attractions and aversions, regulating these external things, the objects of the senses, regulating those and drawing those back in and as a way of becoming more spiritually awake. So this is another form of worship. Others offer all actions of the senses and of the breath in the fire kindled by wisdom of the yoga of self-restraint. Offer all actions of the senses and of the breath in the fire kindled by wisdom of the yoga of self-restraint. And so here we're talking about meditation. Here we're talking about internalizing our attention. We offer all the senses, we offer the breath, everything into this wisdom of meditation. We let go of everything. This is the yoga of self-restraint. And here, here we use various techniques. So we, we turn our attention within. So now we've withdrawn from the senses, no longer paying attention to what's coming in from the, from the outside. And then we engage in pranayama. So we begin to move the energy internally, uh, intentionally, and work with this. 
inside. This is the fire. And then, and, and, I'm sorry, this is the breath and the fire, the fire of energy and the breath. So we work with the breath, pranayama, and, and, um, and incorporate also mantra. So we have these tools that we use. And so now this is our worship. We are, as Lahiri Mahashaya said, you know, we worship on the altar of the spine. We worship prana, life force on the altar of the spine. This is an inside job, another way of worship. And then he goes on, some, suffer, some offer wealth and austerities. Uh, some offer wealth, austerities, their practice of yoga. Others, ascetics, offer their studies of the scriptures and wisdom itself. So some are offering uh, wealth and austerities in their practice. This is that they're seeing to uh, exercise, nutrition. They're taking care of nurturing their health and dedicating the actions that they're doing, what they're doing, to becoming self-realized. So they're engaged in this actively, physically, externally. And then some offer their studies of the scriptures and wisdom itself. So they study the truth, study scripture, read the Bhagavad Gita, you know, take, uh, do whatever we can to be educated, and then move beyond that into experience, into realization. So we go beyond the studies uh, I'm going to offer the studies of the scriptures and then wisdom itself. So here we go from intellectual understanding and, and knowledge into experience and wisdom. So this is another another aspect of our uh, of our um, uh, worship. Others can, others intent on control of their vital forces offer their in breath to their out breath and their out-breath to their in-breath. And so this is a code for pranayama. So we are talking about, along with the breath, there is prana, energy, life, life force which flows. And as we breathe in, we have apana, we have this downward flowing prana, and as we breathe out, the, prana, the pana, the uh, upward flowing. And so these pranas are moving, this energy is moving constantly. And so regulating this and and uh, harmonizing this is part of this process of pranayama. And there are several pranayamas that we can engage in for various purposes. If we need to be activated and heated, there are pranayamas of like vashtrika, things that we can do to, to heat up the system. And if we're too active and too hot and too over, you know, um, systems over, over cranking a little bit, then there are pranayamas we can do to cool the system back down. And there's pranayamas we can do to balance the system. And this is, you know, the, the, one of the probably the, the most profound ones because it has such an instant and profound effect on balancing the system is alternate nostril breathing. And we just simply, simply breathe in through one side, breathe out through the other, breathe in through the other, breathe out, in, out. In, out, in, out. And this neutralizes, this harmonizes the, the flow of the energy in the Ida and Pingala, the left and right channel, sun and moon, masculine, feminine, sympathetic, parasympathetic. So all these systems come into balance just with this simple process of pranayama. 
So it can be very useful before we meditate because it harmonizes and balances the energy in the body physiologically. It's also very profoundly influential when we have emotional problems. So when we're emotionally upset and we're finding ourselves a little, you know, at loose ends and a little bit confused, um, we can just do a few rounds of alternate nostril breathing and, and notice how quickly we come balanced. The anger goes away or the, you know, the upset and the fear goes away. We can deal with this very quickly, the emotion, with just a simple, a few simple pranayamas. So that can be useful. And then others, while fasting, offer their in-breath into their in-breath. All these understand worship. By worship, they are cleansed of sin. And so this uh, offering the in-breath, fasting and offering the in-breath to the in-breath, we're talking about more intense pranayama, more intense practice, fasting now. We're really, you know, really becoming very intentional and very intense with our practice. Um, and practicing in, in this and in this way with our very intense practice, uh, we also tend to neutralize karma and regulate our life forces. So, so this is also available for those who are much more intense in their practice. And then partaking of the essence of worship, forever they are freed of themselves. So this. Uh, this process, this more intentional, intense process, is also a description of Kriya Yoga. So Kriya is intensive self-discipline, regular study, letting go of the ego, and really practicing, focusing on this experience of oneness with ultimate reality, oneness with God, and this very intentional pranayama, which is now intentionally moving the life force with intention, we're moving the life force, the energy, up and down the spine, up into the centers of the brain. And in the process, we are neutralizing uh, karmas and urges and conditionings and also empowering and enlivening the life force that's moving in the system, enlivening the chakras. So this is a very powerful practice. So this is... This is what Krishna is talking about. Others, while fasting, offer their in-breath to their in-breath. All these understand worship. By worship, they are cleansed of sin. So this is, this is our Kriya practice. And this is, Krishna says, this is what purifies and cleanses us, gets rid of these old conditionings and karmas and things. And then partaking of the essence of worship forever they are freed of themselves. Non-worshippers cannot be happy in this world or any other. So partaking of the essence of worship in all these forms that we've been talking about, forever they're freed of themselves. So this, this, uh, from this uh, sense of limitation, this idea of being separate and limited and conditioned and controlled by the circumstances and events of what's happening around us, forever free, liberated. So this liberation comes as a result of our worship, which is our connection with the larger reality, connection with life, Getting, letting go of this sense of separation and, and limitation and allowing ourselves to just wake up. I mean, to just really become aware that we are this uh, 
pure conscious awareness that we are the witness, the seer, the observer, and that and that as such we are having this amazing adventure of a lifetime. But we are not the mind, and we are not the body, and we are not the conditionings, and we are not the limitations. We can let those go. You know, as a, as enchanting and as addiction addictive as they can be, we can let them go. And for today, finally, he says, thus. Many forms of worship may lead to freedom, Arjuna. All these are born of action. When you know this, you will be free. So here are many forms of worship that lead to freedom, that can lead to freedom. And all of these are action. These are all born of, of wise action. And when you know this, when you're aware of this, then you will be free. You will be liberated. So we... So we go back and we look at the, you know, observe the conditionings and look at the, the places where we are pushed around in life a little bit. Um, I was also thinking with, uh, with respect to um, some of these deep conditionings that sometimes individuals have a real challenge getting over, getting past. And one of the strongest ones that everybody can remember at some point, hopefully, is the first time you fell in love, you know, that, you know, when you, I mean, when you really fall in love, head over heels in love, and, and there's a thing that happens here, and this is uh, not only a mental, not only an idea, but this is a deeply physiological, emotional condition, and what happens is uh, the dopamine, you know, we have these endorphins, endorphins are endogenous morphine, Morphine is this, you know, this drug that they give people to get rid of pain, makes them feel very spaced out and, and high and intoxicated and, and you don't care about the pain, you don't feel anything and it's kind of, you know, an experience. So we have these endor endorphins, endogenous morphines that the brain makes, produces for us. And, and one of these is dopamine and dopamine makes us feel really good, really high. And dopamine comes squirting out whenever we anticipate something interesting. It's not actually when we're experiencing something interesting. It's when we're anticipating it. We're going to go shopping. We get to go to the mall. You know, wow, feel great. Um, so the anticipation about being with our love, thinking about our love, you say we think about them all the time. Every time we think about them, it's like pushing the button on the morphine thing. Every time we push them, we think about them, we get a squirt of dopamine. It feels good. So no wonder we think about them all the time. You see, it's kind of self-medicating. Then on top of that, when we're actually together, there's another uh, hormone that squirts called oxytocin. Oxytocin is the hormone of bonding and feeling one, feeling together. And this feels really good and comfortable and connected. So now we have oxytocin and dopamine, and these are just, you know, flooding the system. And so, so when we're, when we're young and in love, you know, when love is, is new and, and we have this chemical cocktail that is heavily affecting and influencing the introceptive network, how the body feels, and, and supporting these emotions that are coming up and what we're thinking. And so, you know, we watch people, young people, especially, you know, early on, um, 
and this happens a lot before we have all the wiring, you know, before we're 24 and, and the frontal lobes come fully online. So we still have the, a lot of, a lack of impulse control. And so this can really take someone's life over. I mean, we have observed this. I have experienced this personally, and so I can attest to the, to the reality, at least in this, you know, we're in this body. Um, and so, so it's useful for us to be able to observe, to remember and to observe that some of these emotions and some of these conditionings and some of these things that seem to be impulses and urges that are pushing us around, some of these are the result of these chemical cocktails that are being served. And with wisdom, with discernment, we can notice, we can say, oh, look at that. Look at it. this feeling is coming up. Huh, isn't that interesting? And by observing it, instead of just, you know, allowing it to have its way, by observing it and making a conscious choice, we can actually change the direction that this is going. We no longer have to be the effect of whatever the, the, the mind and body happen to be uh, serving us at the time, whatever that cocktail happens to be, you know. So, so we can do that. Conscious, aware, awake wisdom, discernment, these are all capacities that we have inherently. The more we practice them, the more they come to the surface, the, more, the stronger and more powerful they become, and the more control we have over our life. So, and this is the road to liberation, liberation of consciousness. So we meditate in order to be, have the experience of being awake, of experiencing what we are, and then when we're finished with our meditation, then we engage in life and we remember to operate from that situation, from that uh, condition, from that awareness that we are pure consciousness. See? And then life gets to be quite amazing. Then we don't have to suffer anymore. We don't have to be conditioned and we don't have to be fearful and anxious. There's never anything to be afraid of because it's all God. So, so we can move beyond all that suffering. So I think that's a good place to. Ron, could I conclude? could I ask uh -huh. you a question? Um, every year um, we would have a kriya initiation, and you've just talked about the importance of, of our, the usefulness of the kriya pranayama. Um, and every year I would use that as an opportunity to rededicate my spiritual practice. In the last few years, I haven't been able to attend because my spine is so compromised now it hurts to, to sit. And I'm wondering, are, are we going to do an online Kriya initiation sometime? It's possible. Um, I do, uh, I, I've done several online Kriya initiations for individuals that have not yet been uh, initiated um, that are interested in that. And uh, so I haven't really considered do, doing a group blessing service, which is what we would do and what Roy would do. Um, but we can consider that. Um, Thank and you. I'll, and I'll talk to, uh, you know, maybe, well, I'll think about it. Think, Thank you very I'll, much. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. We'll figure okay. something out. Thanks, Ron. Okay. And by the way, if there's anyone who's attending our programs um, that has not been initiated, you can contact me to send me, a, uh, send me an email and we can arrange for that. So, so anything else? No? Good. All right. Well, don't forget to be joyful. 
and this means it's okay to laugh from time to time, you know, good for, good for you. And uh, get some exercise, eat healthy, be nice to yourself, take care of each other, and we'll see you tomorrow. Namaste.